0: Here we are, listener. Episode 10. A small but significant milestone. Ten episodes in 12 weeks. Three episodes of this podcast featuring voices of artists and creatives that I hope you have found as fascinating and inspiring as I do. Five episodes in which I share some of my interests, thoughts and research. One episode that was phoned in and regrettable, that only remains on the feed as an unflinching reminder to never wing it again. Nine episodes out there in the world, and then there's this one, number 10, what to do with number 10. Welcome to Mind Milk Theory, it's an arts podcast, and I'm your host, sometimes contemporary artist, Jim Lockie, featuring, as always the background noise of my noisy neighbours. The podcast is normally a report on the previous week's thoughts and ideas. But I want to use this episode as a chance to look back at what can only be described as a disparate set of topics. There's no one that would recommend making a podcast this way. The subject matter from episode to episode is too diffuse, too scatter shot in theme to keep an audience, but I hope that by discussing these different ideas about which I'm passionate, a bigger picture and shape will reveal itself. I want to pull on the threads and reveal the rhizomatic connections that link Game Boy Cameras, Anglo-Saxon poetry, hell myths, Reformation era iconoclasm and whatever subjects the next 10 weeks throw up. If we are going to keep going with this podcast, and if I am to ask you to come along for the ride, that is the tombola tumbler of my random subject selection process. It seems only fair that we look to identify what, if any, connective thread exists to keep us tethered, to help us find some way through, some logic to it. In truth, listener, the strongest connection in the subjects covered over the last 10 weeks are the fact that they are all topics I think about, and they have aspects that I think are worthy of discussion, of thought, and within which I find art-making inspiration. Other than that, there is no thread. So let's see if we can make one up. During the Reformation, there was this wave of iconoclasm in Europe. Statutes of christ and of saints were sometimes left in situ but whitewashed and their heads and hands were removed these were the parts that made them human that made them relatable the parts which were in the image of god uh, to use in commas these disfigured forms became quiet abstract lumps They became blind witnesses, intended as a testament to the powerlessness of the image and the folly of icon veneration. Of course, these muted saints carried their own kind of power and iconography. The image is not destroyed, only mutated. The absence of an image is itself an image Iconoclasm was discussed in depth in episode 4 of this podcast, an episode titled Images. I am interested in Iconoclasm because as an artist, as an image maker, how could I fail but be drawn into this moment of history in which the power of pictures was discussed in grave terms of life and death, salvation and damnation? How can you fail but take note of a moment when people took what you do for a living that seriously. I've always been interested in the intersection between art and belief. I was brought up religious and I still have a faith now. I've always felt this deep-rooted suspicion that art and faith are sort of the same thing. They are different expressions of the same deep human impulses. In episode 8 of this podcast, I talked about the Old English poem Beowulf. and In that poem, the narrator described the practice of uh, shops. These are tellers of the Old English and Norse storytelling tradition. The word shop is a forebear of the modern word shape because these storytellers shaped reality. Within Beowulf, the poet is intentional in showing us how the shops change the tale, and even Beowulf himself embellishes stories of his own deeds. The first song of the shops the poet gives the reader is a paraphrasing of the Christian creation story. The poet consciously draws a connection between the storyteller's shaping of reality and God's shaping of matter in Genesis 1 to create the world. There is certainly a thread of mystic perception within art making that links those two episodes of the podcast. I explored the religious themes in Beowulf further in an essay, And the ideas discussed within the Iconoclasm episode were carried on in a series of prints, both of which you can find on my website, jimlocky.com. What I haven't told you about before is my personal brush with Iconoclasm and the devastating power of images. I mentioned that I was brought up religious. Well... One Easter, when I was a teenager, I made this big black and white drawing of Christ on the cross for a display at my local church. We weren't the kind of church that normally had pictures, statues or images of Christ, so it was a bit unusual for them to put on this art show. The picture stayed on display throughout the Easter period, and when it came time to take the display down, the picture went missing. Months later, I went to a friend's house, and they had it on the wall in their room. My picture, and taken from a church, no less. When I asked for it back, they said no. They couldn't give it up. It was pretty weird. I saw in that experience the kind of idol worship the iconoclasts were on about. An image takes something abstract and unknowable and tethers it to the earth, makes it manageable and that's attractive us artists wield a strange power when we represent the world and it wouldn't be difficult to use it for ill needless to say that was my last image of a crucified christ maybe i would have been an iconoclast not because i hate images but because i respect them and their power my reason for sharing that story listener is that i think its than holds even if you're not working with religious imagery or subject matter. When we create, we are moulding the universe. Like Beowulf's shops, we are forming reality, revealing hidden truths. In the episode about the Game Boy Camera, we were again talking about the power of images and how that limited technology in that device served as a kind of portal through which to view the world in a different way, through which the artist can shape or reframe reality. I think that is the connective thread and a partial explanation of the mystic and esoteric parts of my practice. It's all a shaping or reshaping of reality, a search for ecstatic perception. In Dante's Paradiso, when Dante sees God at the end and he comes face to face with all beauty, the architect of all reality. Everything that Dante has seen from the depths of hell to the heights of heaven proceed from and gives tribute to this one central figure in a beautiful cyclical pattern. The whole epic poem has been leading to this moment and there is this line that translates something like The sage told me to look up but i was already looking up some translators uh, skip the line altogether because it's redundant but it sticks with me partly because it's funny in that redundancy the sage here is saint bernard who takes up the poet virgil's role as guide in heaven he stands in for the artist's role at the end of paradiso the pilgrim dante knows to look up without guidance But while we're still on the journey, it's hard to know which way is up, how to find the beauty and truth in our world and experience. I think that's what makes good art. It's those pieces that say, hey, look up. I think that's why I tend towards the themes that I do in my practice and the themes we've explored over the last couple of months on this podcast. It's not about representing god or a religious idea as we've discovered i think i am an iconoclast in that sense but it's about searching for greater truths and a broader sense of reality and to shape and explore that something more to look up hey listener look up that's it for this week our music is by prod Rideman, you can find him on the internet i will see you next time i hope you're well keep making stay compassionate i'll see you next week bye